So you have your Bibles open to Ephesians chapter 4, and I want to jump right back into our, our series, Two Kingdoms in One House, Living with a Disobedient or Unsaved Spouse. And it's been, a, it's been no doubt, a heavy um, series so far. Uh, we've had two installments already in this. Part one was called The Interruption, and that's, that's when we, there's a realization that there very well could be two kingdoms represented in this one home, this one house, in, in this marriage. One regenerated and one still outside of Christ. And in part one, we saw that how, how do we come to this place where I might be married to an unbeliever? Well, usually one of three ways. Number one, um, it, perhaps you just disobeyed Scripture. That's so clear. In your choosing of a, of a spouse, it needs to be someone in Christ if you're a believer. And we went through, I think, three or four different texts on that. And, and sometimes this is the fruit of, of disobedience on the part of the Christian spouse. Other times, uh, when the couple came together in marriage, neither one were saved. This is what happened at Corinth, and this is what happened with some of Peter's readers, as we saw this morning. And, uh, and, uh, and then the gospel lands, and one repents, and one doesn't, at least yet. And we have a mixed marriage. And, but there's a third possibility, too, and it's just this. It, it, it takes you by surprise deep into your marriage. The, the passing of time reveals that there really wasn't um, a true saving faith in place in, in one of the spouse's hearts. It's not that you disobeyed. And married an unbeliever knowingly, and it's, um, but it's just that the passing of time reveals, just like in the parable of the sowers, it's the passing of time that reveals um, where there is true life and where there isn't. It's the same with the parable of the wheat and the tares. But that's an unsaved spouse. What about a disobedient spouse? How does that happen? And we just talked in that first message about how um, just being disobedient uh, in an unrepentant way about an area of their life or about their their commitments to the marriage or their commitments in the parenting. There's any number of things that we can point to, but when they're shown something in Scripture that they are to be pursuing and they say, no, I won't pursue that, I'm going to pursue this, um, well, at, at the very least, they're disobedient, and they're disobedient, and time will show if they're even saved. But that's the interruption. We talked about that. And then that was a heavy ending. There's no easy landing for that plane, Right? that first installment. It's just hard news. And so we landed the plane by promising a case study. And, and uh, we noted that there were several we could look at in Scripture. We could look at Job, whose wife told him to curse God and die. We could look at Solomon with many wives and concubines. We could look, and they turned his heart from, from God. We could look at um, Isaac's wife, or Isaac himself. But, but uh, we decided to look in part two at the case study of Abigail, who was married to Nabal. And that recording is online. And, and he was, a, he was a, a, a fiercely unpleasant person who was not walking with Yahweh, the, 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 two, the true God of the nation of Israel in the Old Testament. And Abigail just blossomed and, and even served him and preserved him when he wasn't even aware of it. And it was a beautiful case study, and we thank God for Abigail. Um, but as we come around the corner to part three, I'm calling part three tonight the put-off, the put-off. And now I'm going to need to explain what I mean by that kind of language. And uh, my goal tonight is to introduce you to a tool that I'm sure that you're familiar with, 
But I need it to be solid in your mind tonight because the rest of our series, and there's going to be um, six parts, there's three more parts after tonight to this series. For, this, for tonight and the next three messages, you must not only own this tool, you must understand it and carry it with you. And this tool is something like, you know, people make fun of my knives. That happened this morning in a public meeting. James, where did he go? He ran, okay. Uh, so he, he talked about knives, so that means I get to use it as an illustration again. I have in my hand here a pocket knife that's important to me. My wife's been gone for a week with my grandson, and I, this is the knife I've carried today. Just uh, It's one that she and I bought on our little getaway to Alaska. It has mammoth bone in the handle and, and all that. It's got one blade on it. What's one blade good for? It's good for cutting things, opening boxes, stuff like that. And you get an A-plus if that's your answer. I have one knife with one blade. It does one thing. It cuts. You don't pry with it. You don't draw with it. You, you cut with it. How many of you either know what, you, you know what a Swiss Army knife is, or better yet, you've owned one before? Raise your hand. Those are the bright, look at this. This is the universal language of pocket knives or purse knives. A Swiss Army knife is one knife, but it has 17 tools. The most basic one, you can get like at least 15 or 17 usages out of it. There are videos of how to change that into like 100 uses, if you watch YouTube videos, out of a simple Swiss Army knife, the red one about the size of your, your finger. And uh, those are amazing. It's one knife, has way more than one blade. I mean, it has scissors on it. It has things you can fish with. It has magnifying glasses on it, it has nail files, it has tree saws, it has can openers, bottle openers, screwdrivers, and I'm just getting started. If you have that one knife, you, with all those multiple tools, there are limitless applications of that knife. That is a true survival knife, and some people even call Swiss Army knives a Swiss Army survival knife. Well, what I want to give to you tonight when it comes to this heavy topic we're dealing with, and, and especially what we're going to cover from tonight through the end of the series, I want to give you a spiritual Swiss Army knife. It's one verse, or one concept, three verses, that I think we can even get down to one verse. It has limitless applications, and it will help you survive if you find yourself married to a disobedient or unsaved spouse. And that one knife, or that Swiss Army, that spiritual Swiss Army knife, is the doctrine of progressive sanctification. Your Bible is open to ground, what we consider ground zero in this doctrine. And I want to remind you of things that we've talked about as a church before, but I, we're gonna, I'm going to point out some things on this knife, and then we're going to take it on a trip, and we're going to survive with it. And so I have in your notes, across the top of your notes, right under the introduction, are three boxes that all have the letter R in them with blanks. And it's going to be filled in to look like, kind of like this. These are your three words to put across the top of that chart, that simple chart in your notes. The first box on the left is the word repent. And the second box is the book renew, or the book, the, the word renew. And the third box is the word replace. Now I want to show you where this is here in Ephesians chapter 4. And then I want to prove to you that this is not something that's novel to Ephesians 4. 
if you can see this in Ephesians 4 and you're looking for it, it's going to show up all over the Bible, Old and New Testament. And I want to show that to you. Why is that? Because I want you to see if both Testaments are almost stuttering, saying the same thing on how we change and grow and how we can survive as believers in this world, we better pay attention. And we better keep this thing in our pocket for whatever we face, especially if you're facing what we're talking about in this series. Now, look down at Ephesians chapter 4. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to focus on verses 22, 23, and 24 in a moment, but I want to build some speed up here and catch Paul in stride, writing to believers, contrasting them to what he's just described the unbelievers to be, verse 17. So I say and affirm together with the Lord that you walk no longer just as the Gentiles also walk. In other words, some of the Christians at Ephesus still looked and smelled unsaved with some things they were doing. Isn't it nice to read Ephesians? I mean, Paul had to write this kind of stuff to a church. And, and, and we tend to think that churches represented by these epistles are always perfect churches. They were messy. They had normal people in them just like, well, our church. And we can feel and give in to the gravity of being like the world. Yes, so Paul writes this to them and through them to us. I say and affirm together with the Lord that you walk no longer just as the Gentiles also walk in the futility of their mind, being darkened in their understanding, excluded from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them, because of the hardness of their heart. And they, the unsaved, having become callous, have given themselves over to sensuality for the practice of every kind of impurity and greediness. And then he starts, he, he talks to the believers very directly, and he says, this is what should define you now that you're in Christ. Stop that. This is what happens and why things have to be different with you. He says, you did not learn Christ this way. If indeed you have heard him and have been taught in him just as truth is in Jesus. I believe 20 and 21 is talking about their salvation. That in reference, pay attention to these verses, the next three. In reference to your former manner of life, you lay aside the old self, which is being corrupted in accordance with the lusts of deceit, and that you be renewed in the spirit of your mind and put on the new self, which in the likeness of God has been created in righteousness and holiness of the truth. He said it all. I mean, he said it all. You see, how do you know he said it all? Because verses 25 to 32, the rest of this chapter, he's going to apply it with different story problems. He said it all, and the rest of the chapter, he takes it for a ride. He's going to talk about evil speech. He's going to talk about sinful anger. He's going to talk about stealing. And he's going to say, how does a thief, how does a dirty talker, how does an angry person change? Well, with what he just told you up in verses 22 to 24. I mean, he catches it all in verses 22, 23, and 24. And your chart on your notes reflects verses 22, 23, and 24. And I want you to mark that chart up uh, this way. For the box repent, put verse 22, where it says, in reference to your former manner of life, that which was described in verses 17 through 19, you, and here's the key phrase, lay aside. Lay aside that old self from verses 17 through 19. What is seen there? 
lay that aside and the deeds and the thoughts and the words that come from that kind of a life, some of your translations helpfully translate it this way, put off the old man. Now, I'd like for you to put the words, the two words above the, or near the repent box, put off. Because obviously I'm calling put off repenting. It's the same thing. It's owning it. If I'm, I don't put things off in the abstract. I have, to, I have to point at something. I have to own that I'm guilty of that. And I need to, to put into action the removal, the, the remorse, the sorrow, the repentance for that action. I take full responsibility for it. So repent is in verse 22, or you can call it put off. You don't have to write this down, but here's how I like to define what it means to repent or put off. It's identifying an old man trait, taking full responsibility for it before God and others, and forsaking it. That's it. Identifying an old man trait, taking full responsibility for it before God, and forsaking it. That means you not only take care of it with God in repentance, but if you've sinned against someone else, you have to own it to them too. There's a vertical forgiveness with your father, but there's also a horizontal forgiveness that needs to be sought with those that you sinned against. That's that first box. That's where it all starts. The second box is, as you can guess, from verse 23. So write verse 23 under that second box we call renew. And we're actually pulling the word right out of the verse. Verse 23 says that you be renewed in the spirit of your mind. To be renewed in the spirit of your mind. Now you say, well, what, what does that mean? Okay, so if I want to take, okay, my wife's been gone, right, for a week, and I've been driving her car. She's got the nice car. And it's kind of rained on it a lot, if you haven't noticed, and roads have been muddy. And I'm going to try to take that car on my way to Detroit Metro tonight. I want to go by Mr. Bubbles on Grove Street. That's one of my wife's hangouts. It's a car wash. And if you say, why are you going to do that? Because I want to renew the shine on her car. What am I trying to say when I say renew the shine? It means that there's been stuff put on it to take away um, the shine and the, and the, the cleanliness that should and could define it. If I say that I need to renew my mind or you need to renew your mind, what does that imply? It implies that in your thinking or in my thinking, I've started to revert back to thinking like a, a pre-gospel person. And so I need to expose myself to the truth of God, what I've been taught in Christ, verses 20 and 21. I need to go back to the truth of the gospel, and we would say, and to the, to the authority of Scripture, the totality of it, and find out where my thinking had started to go wrong here, and I need to own that. I'm renewing my mind. I'm walking away from the lies I had been believing, the wrong thoughts I have been feasting on, and I'm going to fill my mind and, and fill that vacuum with, replace those thoughts with God's truth. You can only get that one place, and it's God's word. So I'd like for you to put another two words next to the renew box. For repent, we've called that put off. For renew, we're going to put these words there, put in. Put in. 
In other words, I, if I've been into sin, if I've been indulging in sin or I've gotten into a, 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 a sinful habit of even in a difficult marriage of, of my words being hurtful or combative or I've been manipulative because I've been believing that I can control an unsaved or disobedient spouse, um, Scripture's going to challenge me on that. And I need to stop believing my lies that I've been reciting in my heart and I need to be reciting God's word on these. That's renew. I like to define it this way. Don't try to write this definition down, but renewing the mind or, or putting in, as verse 23 is stating, this is a conscious effort to have God's perspective on life and on the very specific area in my life right now that needs to change and grow. In other words, it is internalizing God's mind through the reading, through the memorizing, and the meditating on God's Word. That's it. That's it. That is an important required component for change. Now, let's go over to that box on the right in your notes and on the screen. The word is replace. You figured it out. Write down verse 24 for this one. It says, and put on the new self which in the likeness of God has been created in righteousness and holiness of the truth, consistent with the truth, consistent with Scripture, the will of God. This doesn't just happen. None of these three just happen. Just because you're a Christian doesn't mean that this is something you don't ever have to put your mind on. This is a Swiss army tool in your pocket on a spiritual level. Whatever you find yourself facing including a difficult marriage where there's unbelief or disobedience. This is what must come out of the pocket to change you. To change you. So if repent is put off and renew is put in, then you can guess what replace is going to be. Put on. Put on Christ-likeness. In other words, when you... listen. When you repent, all you science teachers, listen. When you repent of sin, you create a vacuum. That vacuum must be filled. It will be filled. Every vacuum will be filled. It's either going to be filled with what you've expelled again, or you will fill it actively with something new. And this is exactly what Paul is saying here. I like to define replace or put on with these words. This is a conscious effort to replace unbiblical behavior with Christ-like behavior. The direction is given by a renewed mind. It's hard work, but it's energized by God's Spirit and grace. There are some verses I always like to remember with this box. Um, Philippians 2, work out your salvation with fear and trembling, for it's God that works in you, both the will and the do of His good pleasure. I also enjoy um, discipline yourself for the purpose of godliness, 1 Timothy 4, 7. This is hard work. There's a, there's a spiritual sweat that breaks out, our Kent Hughes says. And where with box one, you not only have to repent and ask forgiveness of your Heavenly Father, but also other people involved, the same with replace. There's commitment and a, and a pleading with the Heavenly Father for grace and strength to manifest Christ-likeness where before you were sinning. And there's promises made not just to God, but also, if 
by his grace to other people who've been affected by your sin. See, this is always God's process for change and survival in a difficult situation. For change in any area of your life where you're not living out Christ-likeness, you repent of that, you renew your mind with Scripture, and then you put on christ like and you say, I don't know what Christ looks like. Well, he looks a lot like the Beatitudes in Matthew 5. He looks a lot like the wisdom from above in James 3. And just read through those verses 13 through 18. He looks a lot like Galatians 5, 22 and 23, the fruit of the Spirit. He looks a lot like the virtues of 2 Peter chapter 1. He looks a lot like the virtues of Romans chapter 5. Those are portraits of Christ. I'm giving you, in general, a very, very important tool. But I want you to see, I want to prove to you as well, that this is not something unique for Paul and the Ephesians. I mean, if we had enough time tonight, I would take you through three chapters, Romans 6 through 8, and you would be able to identify whenever whenever Paul is calling for repentance, renewing, or replacing. Putting off, putting in, We're putting on, and it's all through those three chapters. I could take you through the entirety of the chapter of Colossians 3, right from the start, all the way to the end, and you would be able to identify all three of these components. I can even read some of your favorite verses that you memorized years ago in Awana. Like, listen to these. I'm going to read it out loud. And you in your mind identify the repent, the renew, the replace, or the put off, put in, and put on. Romans 12, 1 and 2. Everyone knows these verses. Therefore, I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God, I'd suggest that's he's calling them to remember something, that's renew their mind with the gospel. I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice, acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. And do not be conformed to this world, that's repent, but be transformed, that's replace, by the renewing of your mind. There's the renew. See? are some of your favorite verses, and it's been saying the same thing to you all these years. I'm going to read some more of your favorite verses and see if you can see them again. Hebrews chapter 12, 1 and 2. Therefore, since we have so great a cloud of witnesses surrounding us, let us also lay aside every encumbrance and the sin which so easily entangles us, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, Fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of the faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and sat down at the right hand of God. There you have the laying aside, you have the running forward, and you have the reflecting back on Jesus in the gospel. Repent, renew, replace. I could, go, I could change authors again and go with you to James 1, and you could identify these. I want to belabor this because I want you to... Be excited about this. It's everywhere. James chapter 1, verse 19 and following. Listen to this. This you know, my beloved brethren, but everyone must be quick to hear, slow to speak, and slow to anger, for the anger of man does not achieve the righteousness of God. Therefore, putting aside all filthiness and all that remains of wickedness, in humility receive the word implanted, which is able to save your souls, and prove yourselves doers of the word, not merely hearers who deceive themselves. You got all three of them there? 
But I'm going to get real daring now. I'm, I'm pretty confident up here. So I'm going to see if I can get it down to one verse. Think I can do that? What Paul covers in three chapters in Romans 6 through 8 or three verses in Ephesians 4, 22 to 24, I'm going to see if I can get it down to one verse. And it's in Psalm 119, verse 59. I considered my ways and turned my feet to your testimonies. I considered my ways, that's repent, I'm owning it, my propensities. And turning my feet to your testimonies, that's replacing with Christ-like characteristics, with, with righteousness and godliness. And what's driving that? Your testimonies, Lord. So you, I'll stop there. Can you see how this simple diagram is always central when it comes to growth in general as a Christian. And I'm going to bring in, into this series at this point to say it's essential for you to survive in a marriage between you and an unbeliever or a disobedient Christian. Being in a difficult situation like that does not give you the right to be the exception to what's on the screen or in your notes. This is the only process we have to change and survive. Now, a lot of people, even in the biblical counseling world, look at this chart and look at Ephesians 4, and they like to reduce it to two boxes. Just simply put off and put on. And I would suggest to you that it's important to keep the renew in the middle of that. These aren't three boxes that you literally check off as you go through them and thinking, well, it's all my change will happen now. No, that's legalism. You don't check boxes. But these are components that must always be present. And since in some of the verses I've read to you a moment ago, these are in different orders, I think that's instructive. But I also want to say, if you have to enter this process, do it this way. Always go in at the renewing point. Because when you need to, need to grow or you need to survive in a difficult situations, it requires that you get your Bible open. You must hear God speak through his authoritative and sufficient text. And I always say, enter this process by opening your Bible. Because watch this. If you and I don't open our Bible when we're, we're struggling with sin internally, or we're, we're trying to survive a, a very difficult marriage with an unbeliever or an unsaved person, if we don't go in at the renew point to open our Bible, watch this, we're not going to know what to repent of, right? It's the Bible that will say, stop doing this. This is a non-option. If, if your default has been to do this, you need to repent. We don't know that if we don't open our Bibles. And if we don't go in to the, at the renew point to open our Bibles and start there, we not only don't know what to repent of, Scripture will tell us, but we also don't know without opening our Bible what to put on. What specific fruit of the Spirit must be emphasized according to the need of the moment? We don't know that. Listen, if we keep our Bibles closed and we just, we just white-knuckle through another day. This process is everything. I look at it this way. You know, when we go out on E-Course Road, every once in a while, I'll, ask, I'll come out of my office and I'll ask Carolyn in the middle of the afternoon. I'm falling asleep. 
I need a Diet Coke and some beef jerky. And that restaurant, or that restaurant, that gas station right across the road is, uh, has good beef jerky and Diet Cokes. But I've learned this about e-course. Don't be tricked by this road. I know it used to be a lot busier than it is now, but these cars are flying on here. And I, you learn real quickly when you go on e-course to just get beef jerky and Diet Coke across the street. If you're walking across, uh, you've got to look both directions or you might go down in flames. You know what? When you're trying to survive a difficult marriage like what we're talking about in this series, or even step even further out into the broader scene of just needing to change and grow in your life to become more like Christ, you've got you to gotta get into the Word, and you need to look both ways. What do I need to put off? What do I need to put on? Just reading the Bible isn't magical. It's going to put you to work. Work that is animated and graced by the Spirit of Christ Himself. And you'll always find what you need to put off and what you need to put on. So, there's your tool. Now, let's stick with the series and bring it into the series. Part three tonight is called The Put Off. And I'm just going to run some things by you as if we were drinking coffee together of things that commonly need to be put off in the life of a spouse who is married to an unbeliever or a disobedient um, believer, and they're very discouraged about it. And what I want to go over with you are, are, are places that it's not uncommon for these spouses, sometimes it's a husband, sometimes it's the wife, they end up running these paths into the ground so that they become kind of their default setting in their marriage in response to the difficulties. So, let's talk about what to put off. Number one, I'm just going to point out to you tonight. Put off manipulation. Put off manipulation. This is not a, a, an available option to the child of God who finds themselves in a divided home spiritually. Now, the key word with manipulation, you might want to write, write this near the word manipulation. The key word here is the word or the concept of withholding. Withholding. Just write that down. You'll understand it in a moment. You need to put off. You need to repent. Remember, remember what repentance means. We need to see if we're guilty of this. If so, we need to own it. Confess it to our Heavenly Father. Receive His fatherly forgiveness. And we're probably going to have to make a blaze a trail to our spouse and own it that we've been doing this and ask their forgiveness. What are these things? What do you mean by manipulation? Well, the key verse for this is what we studied this morning. 1 Peter chapter 3, 1 through 6. I'd like for you to turn back there. 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 1 through 6. I promise when I started, when I laid out the speaking schedule, I did not intentionally put this Sunday morning and Sunday night together with the theme. It just, it's, it's how it happened. So the good news is I can just read these verses now. I don't have to preach them, right? It says in verse 1, I want you to be looking for tones of manipulation here. Okay? 1 Peter 3. In the same way, you wives, be submissive to your own husbands, so that even if any of them are disobedient to the word, they may be won without a word by the behavior of their wives, as they observe your chaste and respectful behavior. He's saying you don't win them 
with many nouns and verbs, you win them with your life. In other words, he's saying, do not manipulate. When you use the word withholding, you say specifically what? Now, I'm going to be careful with categories I'm going to talk in because we have some young ears, but I um, fill in the blanks and what I don't say here, okay? First of all, the withholding of intimacy. This is not uncommon where there's a, um, a, a, a split home that the believing spouse may intentionally or not immediately intentionally find themselves withholding intimacy. And I'm talking there about frequency, and I'm talking there about um, wholehearted enjoyment uh, as God has designed this to be enjoyed. I'll leave it there. That's a dangerous one. You say, why is that? Because when you withhold, because you are, you're discouraging your marriage and, and you're maybe, you might even use it as a coercion so that your spouse will make promises to go to church next week. If it gets to a point like that where it's being withheld, you understand, you're, you might think you might be manipulating your spouse, but really you are placing not just your spouse, but yourself into a very dangerous spot. Next to this one, write down 1 Corinthians 7, 5. 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 5. I'll just read it to you for the sake of time. Um, go, you, you can start with verse 3. The husband must fulfill his duty to his wife, and likewise also the wife to her husband. The wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. And likewise, also the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. Verse 5, stop depriving one another, except by agreement for a time so that you may devote yourselves to prayer and then come together again, listen to the rest of this verse, so that Satan will not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. God has wired you, if, if you're in marriage, to have an outlet of intimacy. And if you dabble with that, trying to manipulate, um, you're... You're, you're introducing the enemy into your home to further divide you and to put you yourself in a place of temptation. This is an explicit verse, verse 5. It's an explicit verse on the place of spiritual warfare where there is a lack of intimacy where God has prescri- prescribed for it to be normal. What else do we have to put off? Manipulating by withholding communication. Manipulating by withholding communication. You say, what do you mean? Well, I mean, let's just think of the two. To get us started, just think of the two types of bad communication. You can have shouting, screaming, or you can have silence. Either one is not communication, is not biblical communication. If you shout, you're assailing, you're attacking. If you're silent, you're still attacking, but as Jim Berg puts it, it's silent murder. Neither honor Christ, neither reflect biblical communication, and I'll say neither reflect Jesus. And we don't have to wander far from our Sunday morning series to remember how Jesus did not return what was hurled at him. 
1 Peter 2, 22-23, He committed no sin, nor was any deceit found in his mouth. And while being reviled, he did not revile in return. While suffering, he uttered no threats, but kept entrusting himself to him who judges righteously. You can say, well, I'm just not pleased, and I just have to take control of this, so I'm going to use my communication to to beat up on my spouse or coerce them or manipulate them to want something more peaceful, and they'll get it if they give me my way and they come to church with me. That's withholding communication. What else must we put off? Withholding emotional stability. Withholding emotional stability. Some spouses in this situation, I've observed, try to keep their unsaved or disobedient spouse off balance. You know, it's not always a wife, sometimes a husband doing this, but let's say it's the wife again who's the believer, and, and the husband who's either disobedient or unsaved will tell me, I don't know who I'm coming home to every night. I don't know if it's going to be happy wife or mean wife or depressed wife or fill in the blank. He says it's different every night. And in some cases, that emotional instability is intentional to get either pity or to get your way. That moodiness is anything but spirit-filled. Another place uh, manipulation plays in marriages like this often is withholding your presence. This is where the word isolation becomes so important. The, the, the Christian spouse might say, ah, I just, you know what, there's so much difference between us. I'm just going to figure a way to get busy with the kids, get busy with a career, get busy with something else that will make it look like I have to be away from them. Because I just don't want to be around them. And they can really look busy doing what looks like good things with parenting or, or good things with um, work or even play, but it's an intentional isolation away from the unsaved spouse, or sometimes a manipulation looks like this. I'm going to disengage spatially, not be around a lot, so that they'll miss me and want to be with me. That's manipulation. That must be put off. Those people look busy, but it's all intentional. There's another way that they manipulate. It's, it's withholding unity. Withholding unity. In a house like this, the, it might be, be uh, because of the behavior of the believing spouse that there's constant conflict. Or the believing spouse might even start to really, really embrace the idea of having pockets of privacy in their life that their unsaved or disobedient spouse doesn't have access to. And lo and behold, they, because of the believing spouse sometimes, it's like the mainland is splitting into two island nations where each has their own currency, their own holidays, their own values. And often that's driven with whatever intention by the, the believing spouse who doesn't think anything's going to change. Look at these five withholdings that are very common. And by the way, all of them are voided out by 1 Peter 3, 1 through 6. I would suggest, I want to say this carefully, and hopefully 
I don't have a sarcastic tone to my voice. I, I, my heart can't be any more into what I'm getting ready to say. Because there are people in awful homes and marriages, and some in places of danger, which we're going to talk about. But I want to suggest that when we revert to this, withholding intimacy, withholding communication, withholding emotional stability, withholding presence, withholding unity from our unsaved or disobedient spouse, I'm going to suggest to you that that can be considered reactionary, listen, abuse. And I want you to remember not only those two words, but I want you to remember Romans 12, verses 14 and following with those two words, reactionary abuse. Or can I put it in Paul's language, returning evil for evil. Romans chapter 12, verse 14, just listen. Um, bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. Be of the same mind toward one another. Do not be haughty in your mind, but associate with the lowly. Don't be wise in your own estimation. Listen to this, verse 17. Never pay back evil for evil to anyone. Verse 18. As much as it's possible for you, be at peace with all men. Verse 19. Never take your own revenge, beloved, but leave room for the wrath of God, for it's written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. In the place of vengeance, verse 20, if your enemy's hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him drink. For in so doing, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. That's verse 21. To manipulate like this is a reactionary abuse. And I would even say, you can probably, we're not talking about the put on tonight, that's our next message. But you can already look at the put off list here that's common in these scenarios and you can tell what the put on's going to be, can't you? Because for most of those, I took you to a passage of scripture. And First Peter call, uh, covers all of them as well. If you're in a difficult marriage with an unbeliever or a, uh, a disobedient professing believer, Intimacy needs to be regular. Communication needs to be biblical as far as what comes out of your mouth. You need to provide an emotional stability by God's grace. You need to seek to be in their presence. Paul, in 1 Corinthians 7, calls you light. Calls you holy in a divided house. What good is that if the light's never with the unsaved? And you need to strive for the unity. You say, well, I can't. I can't have unity uh, with an unsaved person that I'm married to now. Really? I mean, the answer is constant conflict? You mean the, 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 the answer is our pockets of privacy? No. You understand this. Even if you are married to an unbeliever, it's still a one flesh relationship. And Genesis 2.24 still holds. You're one flesh, and there needs to be a constant moving towards each other at every level possible. We put these off. We own them. We repent. The first put off is, na- is manipulation. The second put off is nagging. Nagging. I have a couple key verses I'd like for you to write down. And I'm going to read them to you. They're all in Proverbs for this one. These Proverbs isn't the only place I could go for this. But I, I have a string together and 
in order as they unfold in Proverbs. You'll know these verses as soon as I start reading them. It says in Proverbs 19.13, the contentions of a wife are a constant dripping. Chapter 21, verse 9. It's better to live in the corner of a roof than in a house shared with a contentious woman. You say, well, man, I mean, you'd rather live on a roof and be exposed to the 70 mile an hour winds in Romulus on Thursday night or, um, or Friday night. Um, when was that, Thursday night? That was Thursday night, wasn't it? And uh, there's rain and there's lightning and there's tornado activity. And, and this guy would say, mm-hmm, and he'd smile. Because the storm out here is not as bad as the storm downstairs. Proverbs 25, 24. It's better to live in the corner of the roof. He's saying that again. Than in a house shared with a contentious woman. We're going to have two statements very similar there. Proverbs 27, 15, and 16. A constant dripping on a day of steady rain and a contentious woman are alike. He who would restrain her restrains the wind and grasps oil with his right hand. I think you're getting the point here. And and it goes both ways too. A husband can be someone who nags or preaches at his wife. We use the word preach for the guys. The key word for what I'm going to recommend that you put off here, the key word is relentless. For the first put off, it was withholding. The key word here is relentless. Relentless what? Well, relentless preaching against sin. It's just you come home and every time your unsaved or disobedient spouse is doing something that you don't think is right, I mean, you you break out the Bible, you have a portable pulpit you set up in the house, and uh, you get your, your hardcover MacArthur Study Bible large print out and you start banging it on the pulpit and you're preaching against that particular sin. You say, is it sin? Yes, it's sin. It's sin, probably what they're enjoying. But that's not the way to reach their heart. They already know, by the way, what you think of it. They already know. So to tell them 20 more times is officially nagging. John MacArthur says there are some, he, 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 there are some uh, spouses that, uh, some wives, he would say, that um, paint the word repent on the bottom of the beer can for the husband. You know, and He's saying, at some point, you've got to stop preaching against the sin. If they're not alive, they don't have ears to hear or eyes to see anyway. Okay? Preaching, relentless preaching against sin is nagging. The second one is re- our relentless invitations to church. Now, you should invite them to church, but they know that that's an open invite. You don't have to remind them three times a week. They know. They heard you on Monday. As far as your, your unsaved or disobedient spouse, they know it's a standing offer to them. Maybe what would be more convincing would be on what it impacts your life with, this thing called church. What's a standing offer to them should be a regular immersion for you. Not just you going and you're embarrassed that your spouse isn't coming. And, and you know, No, it's, it's you going to that church and, and entering into that Ephesians 4.16 body dynamic where you are, you are participating in that body with Christ being the head. And, but every part of that body is busy 
ministering to each other for the growth of the whole body. That might be packing more of a believable punch than you constantly saying, Honey, are you going to go to church again with me this week? I knew you haven't been in, it's been three months and six days. You know, they know. They know. Maybe uh, the church having a deeper impact in your life and commitment will sell it more. Otherwise, if it's a relentless invitation to church, that's nagging. One more. Relentless expression of opinion. This is close to letter A, but letter A is just against sin. Letter C is about pretty much everything else in life. It's like suddenly you're like, well, you're the Christian in the house. You must have the angle of the right perspective on any possible political issue or social issue or medical issue or whatever. And, 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 and you have an opinion and you're going to give it even when it's not asked for, relentlessly. And let me just say something. In, 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 in the marriages, I've had the, 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 the joy of, of, of helping, or my wife has had the joy of helping. Letter C becomes ambient noise very quickly. If you know how this is, if you're around people that always are going to give your, their opinion, and uh, whether you ask for it or not, after a while, you don't hear it anymore. Your mind's busy doing other stuff, just waiting it out taking a break from talking. It'll happen in your home as well. But this one I want to push a little farther. If you are so combative and you're supposed to be the Christian and you're so combative and and all of your positions and your, your preferences you just wear on your sleeve and if someone even questions them you go ballistic. You really... You need to repent of all of these. I might want to start with this one. If that's how you're handling a split home, spiritually. Because at some point, your wife or your husband may find someone that they believe listens to you. Or they listen to them when they talk and they're not always combative. This is always a real risk for men and women. You know, someone is looking for your spouse, even if they're unsaved or disobedient. You say, like, what do you mean? I mean like Proverbs seven, fifteen. The father's talking to his young son, but this is for every age. Proverbs seven, fifteen, quoting a direct quote from an immoral lady. He says, um, seven fifteen, excuse me. Therefore, she says, I have come to meet you, to seek your presence earnestly and now I found you now if your spouse is unsaved or disobedient they don't have ears to hear and eyes to see but they hear someone like that speak to them and they just came from you chasing them out with your 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 argumentative spirit there's a real danger there so it's with great great urgency that you need to master this if this is your story. If you're in a divided home spiritually, you need to go in through Renew, open your Bible, and as we've done tonight, all we've done tonight is introduce the tool and get you to go through Renew and look to your left. Is it possible I've landed into habits of manipulation, withholding, or habits of nagging, relentless nagging? If so, 
before I do anything else, I need to own it. I need to confess it as sin. I need to repent to my heavenly Father, plead for him, plead with him for his grace and help, thank him for his forgiveness, and then seek out your spouse and use the words we've been using tonight of these categories of manipulation and nagging. And even if they're unsaved, ask their forgiveness. What will that do? What will that do? It'll humble you. And maybe they might see the gospel light starting to show a little more. So these are the big two put-off categories that I've tried to populate tonight with you. Because this is where your repentance must start. It's interesting, we look at manipulation and nagging, and, and oftentimes spouses, the Christian spouses in marriages like that, have several assumptions. They manipulate and nag when they feel like they are all alone. They manipulate and, and nag when they think that they are sovereign and they can fix this. They manipulate and nag when they feel they are the exception to anything God would say to someone like this. And they manipulate and nag because they really can't see anything changing my spouse. But what does this teach us? Where does the first change need to start? With my own heart. Now there are some situations with disobedient homes, disobedient spouses and unsaved spouses um, that uh, becomes an unsafe house because of violence, because of abuse, sexual abuse, physical abuse, neglect, abuse of food, shelter, and clothing. These things that can be measured. And I'm just going to say this. Wherever that situation is, where there is danger domestically, you never have to stay in a place of danger. You understand me? God has given you the institution not only of the family, but also of the government, law, Romans 13, as well as the institution of the local church. And if you find yourself in a dangerous place physically, we will get you help as a church and with the authorities in our community. We will try to help you with a place for escape. We'll we'll come to your aid. But I just want to say to those who aren't in that extreme scenario, it's just a difficult marriage because of one having faith and one not. Your goal is not to look for a quick, easy exit out of this. Your goal is to go in through the renew, look to the left and say, okay, is there anything I need to repent of? There's going to be a lot that we're going to put on in our next few studies. But as far as for tonight, part three, I wanted to teach this to you, the put-off and the common things that need to be put off if you find yourself in a marriage like this. There is survival. There is change possible. And there is hope. Would you stand with me as we dismiss in just a word of prayer? Lord Jesus, thank you for the wonderful gift of the gospel. The wonderful gift of the new birth that not only secures heaven for us, but in the present, in, some, in the dark situations we can find ourselves in, 
the gospel gives us resources not just to change where we may have been sinning in response to the circumstances, but the gospel gives us the resources to survive and even to thrive. These aren't tricks and tips and principles. These have everything to do with the person and work of Jesus Christ. We put off anything that is unchristlike. We get the direction for this from the Word of Christ. And then we look to Christ to find what to put on. So Lord, we just thank You for You and the hope and the survival and the change that You make possible for those who find themselves in one home where there are two kingdoms. I pray that Your Spirit will take this study tonight far beyond this series as we think back on these truths, as we think back on these three R's as we press through this week in front of us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. God bless you. You are dismissed.